You're listening to a podcast by Redeemer Bible Church. Come visit us Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or visit our website at redeemerfortbend.org for more information. Thanks and enjoy. Over the past few years, I've become convinced that this autumn is going to become an extremely difficult time uh, for many Christians and many churches. Because on November 3rd, this country is going to head to the polls and vote. And as I've watched the state of American politics over the last few years, I've seen two things I think that point to this being a really hard season for many Christians. First, there's a lot of division in our country. Now, that's not a new phenomenon. Our country's always been politically divided. And in our country's past, division has been every bit as intense as it is in our own time. The election of 1800 remains probably the nastiest election in US history. And we did have a civil war once. But right now is probably the most intense period of political division that most of us have seen. And while this division is terrible, it shouldn't surprise us. Galatians 5 tells us that the deeds of the flesh include enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, and envy. That describes our politics. And these are the sorts of sins that people naturally gravitate towards because they're the sins of the flesh. And the more you give in to the sins of the flesh, the more you follow them. And so it's only natural that after decades of hostility, our politics has become filled with even more strife and even more division. That's not a surprise, that's biblical. But the second thing that I've seen over the last few years is much more alarming to me. Christians are increasingly becoming obsessed with politics. Now, there's nothing wrong with Christians being involved in politics. The apostles urged the Christians of their day to be good citizens of the Roman Empire. And being a good citizen of the United States involves participation in our political process. But my concern is not that Christians are getting involved, it's that Christians are getting obsessed. That we're spending more time reading the news than we are reading our Bibles. That we're talking more about our election than we are about our Lord. That we care more about who our neighbor is voting for than who our neighbor worships. That we're viewing the struggle for the White House or the Congress as the primary battle that God has called us to, instead of the battle for personal holiness. That we're hanging our hope on whatever happens on November 3rd rather than on the return of Jesus. Frankly, friends, I am concerned that politics is an idol which has been brought into the house of the Lord. Friends, we must remember the words of Psalm 146. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. God's people are to trust God, not politicians. But November 3rd is coming. And from the way things seem to be going, it seems likely to me that whatever happens on election day is going to be followed by severe turmoil. And many people who support whichever candidate loses are going to take to the streets with some militancy. There may be no peaceful transition or continuity of power this year. And I worry that this sort of ungodliness will spill into churches across this country, that Christian fellowship and gospel witness will be destroyed because churches have become so wrapped up with the things of this world, and that Christians have too. And friends, that must not happen, and that must not happen here. This is my obligation to help you develop a biblical and a holy way of thinking about the events of our time, and to biblically prepare you for whatever might happen on November 3rd and the days, weeks, and months to follow. And as I've thought about these things and prayed about these things, I kept being drawn back to the book of Daniel. So that's the book that we're going to be studying this fall. And I think this study will be profitable and timely for us because this book teaches God's people how we're to live in exile. You know, for all of this talk about America being a Christian nation, the truth is that if we know Jesus, this is not our home, and it never has been. Philippians 3.20 says that our citizenship is in heaven. So if our citizenship is in heaven, then at this moment we are exiles here. 
How are we to live as strangers in a strange land? Well, Daniel will teach us that. Second, Daniel teaches God's people to remember that the Lord is on his throne. No matter what nations rise and fall, or what leaders emerge or are deposed, God still reigns. He is the Lord of history, and we must trust and obey him. So that's where we're headed this fall. And to set the stage for the book of Daniel, we're going to begin this series with two sermons that give us a bit of background. See, when the book of Daniel begins, Daniel and many other Jews were no longer living in Jerusalem. They weren't even in the promised land. Uh, they had been taken to Babylon, far from home. They were in exile. And we're going to see why that is over the next two weeks. Now, today we're going to begin by studying the book of Habakkuk, many of us have heard it, or uh, Habakkuk, as it is in Hebrew, the book of Habakkuk, one of the so-called minor prophets. And so if you have a Bible, turn to Habakkuk. And if you, have tr uh, if you need help finding it, I tell you that it's right between the books of Nahum and Zephaniah. Or if that doesn't help, find the Gospel of Matthew and just turn a few pages to the left. We're going to begin our series in this book because Habakkuk gives a prophecy that declares that the Jews are going to be taken into exile, a prophecy that we'll see fulfilled next week. And this prophecy teaches us a timely and an important truth, that God is a God of justice, and that God's justice extends not merely to avenging the sins of individuals, but also to avenging the sins of nations. This book will show us what kind of a nation God judges. And it will teach us how God's people are to endure going through the experience of national judgment. And indeed, how we are to endure any calamity that we face in this life. This morning's sermon will be structured around three questions. Let me begin with the first question. How can God be just when he allows so much evil to occur in our society unchecked? Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 1 the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. All right, so here we meet Habakkuk, and uh, the content of this book tells us that he lived about 2,625 years ago. But other than that, we know nothing of this man except that he was a prophet. He received revelations from God, and he disclosed them to God's people. But the book of Habakkuk isn't just like the other prophetic books. It's not simply uh, visionary content that Habakkuk has received. Instead, this is a book which we find uh, to be more like a debate. Habakkuk is a believer who looks around at his society and sees that it is filled with sin. And in his frustration at this sin, he turns to God and he says, why do you let this evil continue unpunished? And God gives him an answer. And then Habakkuk responds. He wants to argue with God. And that's what this book is. It's a debate between God and his prophet about justice. And it begins in chapter 1, verse 2. Habakkuk says, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Habakkuk looks at his society, and what does he see? Violence and destruction. We'll see next week that the final years of Habakkuk's society, the kingdom of Judah, were characterized by much evil. Murder was a regular occurrence in Jerusalem during this period. Iniquity was everywhere. Idols were worshipped. Sexual immorality was rampant. The people turned their back on God and hoped that politics would save them. They trusted foreign alliances to get them out of trouble. And we'll see next week that that failed spectacularly. Moreover, there was much sin directed against the righteous. During this time, the prophet Jeremiah was heavily persecuted. Another prophet named Uriah was murdered for speaking God's word, according to Jeremiah 26. The godly were oppressed. More than that, there were divisions and disputes. Some of the Hebrew words here have legal connotations. The rich are dragging widows and orphans and poor people into court to exploit them. The ungodly pervert the law of God to oppress the godly. And Habakkuk looks at all of this evil and he says, where is God? He says, I prayed about the evil that I see, but you don't answer me. 
Psalm 34 says, When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. But Habakkuk says, It seems like you're not hearing me, God, and you don't seem to be helping your people who are suffering. Where are you? He goes further. He says, God, you're sitting there silently and idly as evil wins, as your own law is perverted. And so he concludes that God is at fault. He says, you've made me watch wickedness because of your inaction. Habakkuk knows that God is supposed to be almighty and good and just, but evil reigns. It seems to be perplexing to him, insoluble. And friends, I would imagine that if we've ever honestly looked at our own society, we've had similar thoughts cross our minds. Our society is marked by violence, isn't it? Depending on the, the, the statistics that you, you get, somewhere between 40 and 80 million children have been murdered in utero since the Roe v. Wade decision. Little children sacrificed, usually because they're deemed inconvenient. What iniquity. It's like the demonic child sacrifice that was practiced in the ancient world. I'll kill my child for a better life. It's demonic and it's damnable. But even those who are born, uh, even those who make it out of the womb, as it were, they experience much violence in our society as well, too, don't they? Between 15 and 20,000 people every year are murdered in this country. There are 80,000 forcible rapes reported every year, countless assaults and other violent crimes. We have school shootings. We have movie theater shootings. We have gang violence. Marv told me that Houston is statistically now the number one city for gang-related violence in the U.S. Violence is everywhere. And you've seen that this summer, haven't we? Police brutality, mob violence. Violence reigns. And so does the injustice. It's become an axiom in this country that the rich can pay for good lawyers and get away with anything. But lately, everybody seems to be able to get away with crime. Violent offenders are getting low bail in the city of Houston, getting out and, and reoffending. Nationally, we've seen politicians and, political, uh, uh, and police officers engage in lawless behavior, and often they escape the consequences of their actions. Rioters, likewise, have been able to plunder with impunity this summer. You say, well, where are the courts? The courts are being used to compel Christian wedding cake bakers and photographers to, to violate their conscience and work at homosexual weddings, which are contrary to their sincerely held religious beliefs. Yes, friends, injustice reigns. And so does division, like we said. The sins that Habakkuk saw in ancient Judah are alive and well in our society today. And that's just talking about the sins that are going on right now, not the sins that have happened in our country's past. And we look at all of this evil and we may well ask, where is God? Where was God when Roe v. Wade was decided? Where was God when someone knelt on George Floyd's neck or shot Breonna Taylor? Where was God when Minneapolis burned? Where was God when Columbine happened or Virginia Tech or Sandy Hook? Where is God? Where is his justice? That's what Habakkuk wants to know. And we may want to know that too. But friends, we need to be careful. Because when we demand that God bring justice to our society, we may not like the answer that we get. And that's exactly what happens here. As God now answers Habakkuk. Chapter 1, verse 5. God says, Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. God says to Habakkuk, I know what's going on. I've heard your prayers. And in fact, I've been at work preparing a response to the evils of your society. And you're about to see what it is. And it's going to shock you. Verse 6, he says, For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth, to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. God says, here's what I'm doing. I've been at work empowering another country the Chaldeans. We know them today as the Babylonians. At that time, when God gave this message to Habakkuk, the Babylonians were an ascendant power in the world. They had recently destroyed the greatest empire of their day, the Assyrians. And the Babylonians had begun to venture forth and to conquer other lands. They were bitter, that is cruel. They were hasty, that is impetuous and swift. They were terrifying, 
And they were powerful. They did what they wanted when they wanted and they didn't care what you thought about it. But they were far off from Judah. Habakkuk and his society would not have considered them a threat. But God says, here's what I'm going to do with the Babylonians. I'm going to bring them against Judah and Jerusalem. Verse 8, their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swift to devour. They all come for violence. All their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. Babylonians had an excellent army. They were the first major army in world history to use cavalry, which made them swift and effective. They also excelled at siege warfare. In other words, when Babylon attacked you, you couldn't just hide behind your city walls. They would pile up dirt so high, and they would build a ramp that would go the whole way to the top of your walls. And then they would march their army up that ramp, drop them down into your city, and kill you. The Babylonians were so powerful, they laughed at every opponent. They laughed at every defensive tactic used against them. They thought they were invincible. And they were so arrogant, they basically worshipped their own might. And God tells Habakkuk, this is my answer. They are coming for your society. They come to do violence. They will kill many people. And those who survive will be captured and dragged away from the promised land as slaves. This was something the Babylonians did to their defeated foes. And this is what's coming for Judah. All right, now what should we take from this? Friends, we need to know that God judges nations. Nations which are characterized by violence, exploitation, and injustice. The Bible says a lot about national judgment. About one in every six chapters of the Old Testament prophetic books addresses God judging sinful nations. But what does it look like when God judges a sinful nation? We might think it always looks like what we see here in chapter 1. The destruction of a country and exile and military defeat. But in fact, the prophets reveal that God uses a number of stratagems to chastise guilty nations. So, which, many of which often come short of destroying a country outright. Now, for the sake of time, I'm not going to read all the passages to prove what I'm about to say. But if you're interested, reach out to me and I'll send you the documentation to prove this. But the prophetic books tell us that God judges nations by unleashing natural disasters, by unleashing diseases or economic distress, by diminishing a country's glory and influence, by allowing a nation to experience terror, by allowing civil unrest to erupt in a country, or by turning the nation's leaders to fools. Moreover, Romans 1 tells us that people who love their sin and resist God are turned over to their own depravity, which generates moral anarchy. Does any of this sound familiar to you? If we're honest, we know that it does. Friends, America is guilty of the same sins that Habakkuk 1 describes. And America has and is experiencing many of the things that the Old Testament prophetic books describe as acts of judgment. Now, I had a theology professor who said that it was irresponsible to say that God is judging our country without receiving a specific revelation from God that says so. But the Bible says in Amos chapter 3, verse 6, does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? And if that's true, how much more true is it that if disaster comes to a nation or to our whole world, which seems to be the case at the moment, that the Lord has done it? Friends, God judges national sin. Now, sometimes it may seem like God's justice is delayed, that sin reigns and that justice is absent. That's Habakkuk's problem. He sees national sin, but he doesn't see judgment. Why this delay? Well, the Bible gives us a few reasons, but I'm going to focus on just one of those reasons here, which is that God is patient and kind, and he wants to give countries a chance to repent, to avert catastrophe. Jeremiah 18, verse 7, God says, If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster which I intended to do to it. God's kind. God takes no joy in the death of the wicked. And God longs to have mercy upon the repentant. And in his patience, God sometimes delays judgment as an invitation to repentance. 
And this is why it's so important for the church in America to get serious about putting the gospel first. Friends, politics and elections aren't going to bring this country to revival. Exchanging red for blue or blue for red isn't going to avert the wrath of God. You don't cure worldliness through the means of this world. Only the faithful proclamation of the gospel, only the fulfillment of the Great Commission in our neighborhoods, among our friends and families, can lead to true revival and repentance. And it is the kindness and the patience of God which stays his hand from bringing desolating judgment upon the deserving. But that delay is only a temporary stay of execution upon those who don't repent. And if repentance does not follow, judgment will fall. And that is not something that we should desire. Habakkuk thought he wanted to see justice. He found out quickly that he didn't. Friends, don't wish for God's justice. Amos chapter 5 says, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light, gloom with no brightness in it. When God moves in judgment, it is a terrible thing. Seek God's mercy. Don't pray for God's justice. Because God's wrath is terrible and it is coming upon all who will not repent. Now this leads us to our second question, which is this. Is God just in bringing evil upon evildoers? Habakkuk wanted God to address the sin of his society, but he didn't like the answer that God gave him. Now Habakkuk probably had just envisioned a few corrupt officials in his government being taken out. I think that was what he was probably seeking. But now he's heard from God that God intends to destroy the kingdom of Judah. And to Habakkuk, this seems impossibly unjust. Verse 12, he says, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. Habakkuk can't believe it. He calls out to the Lord as Yahweh, the covenant name of God. He's thinking of God's covenant promises to Israel. Is God going to be unfaithful to his word? How can God fulfill his everlasting covenant to Israel if he destroys them? And so he says, we will not die. It's interesting that this is often the way that our flesh responds to the proclamation of God's judgment. Denial. The message that God gave Habakkuk here, that Judah was going to fall to Babylon, he gave to other prophets as well. To Jeremiah, to Zephaniah, to Ezekiel. You know what? The Jewish people of that day generally rejected those prophets' messages. Because instead they wanted to hear from false prophets who told them that, oh, that's not happening. There's not going to be any judgment. It's all fake news. Instead they wanted to hear uh, that peace, peace where there's no peace. They wanted to hear in Jeremiah 7 that God would never allow the country where his temple sat to be destroyed. But denying the reality of what God is doing in judgment, that's what false prophets do. And the comfort that they give is shallow because their words are deceitful. God's purposes in judgment are real, and they cannot be avoided through wishful thinking. But thankfully, Habakkuk is no false prophet, and he quickly recognized that God means what he has said. And so he says in verse 12, O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. Habakkuk recognizes that God is going to chastise his people using Babylon. Now, this realization may have taken Habakkuk some time, maybe even a year or so, seems to pass before uh, the, the material we're about to look at. Because earlier God told Habakkuk, you're not going to believe what I'm doing. The Babylonians seemed like a distant, relatively unknown threat. But some time has now passed because, as we're about to see, now Habakkuk knows all about the Babylonians. They have become an increasingly present and real threat by the time he continues his argument with God. He knows what Babylon's about, and he doesn't like what he sees. The Babylonians are vile, wicked, and cruel. And if God is just, how can he use something as unholy and unjust as Babylon as the instrument of his righteous justice? Is this not a contradiction in terms? So again, Habakkuk questions God. Verse 13 says, You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at the treacherous and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He, the Babylonian, brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, and so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. 
For by them he lives in luxury, and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? Now Habakkuk's response here is grounded in his knowledge of the, the character of God. He says, God, you're too holy to look at evil. Now over the years, I've, I've heard people interpret this to mean that somehow God cannot actually see evil or know about the content of evil. That's not what this means. Habakkuk means that evil is an affront to God's holiness, that God will not countenance or regard evil. But if that's true, then Habakkuk says, how can you raise up Babylon and use them to destroy us? Habakkuk is charging God with being inconsistent with his character. And that's quite an accusation. Habakkuk says to God, he said earlier in this book, you're at fault because you sit idly while, while Jerusalem falls into sin. Now he says to God, you're at fault because you sit idly while Babylon does evil. He's, he's calling the character of God into question. And Habakkuk makes his point now by telling a parable. He says, God, it's, it's like you've caused all the nations to be like fish who are just swimming around defenseless. And Babylon is like a fisherman who comes by and plunders these fish. He yanks them out of the water. He kills some. He takes others away as his captives. Babylon is malicious and cruel. And Babylon is proud. It's like the fisherman worships his own fishing tools. That's how devoted the Babylonians were to their military strength. They're basically worshiping themselves. It's insane national arrogance. And in the face of all of this evil, Habakkuk says to God, how can you allow an evil nation like Babylon to destroy Judah, who is more righteous than Babylon is? Wait, what? He said Judah's righteous? Since when is he saying Judah's righteous? Didn't Habakkuk start this book out by talking about how evil his society was? You know, it's, it's funny how easy it is to see sin around us until we hear the truth about God's judgment. Then suddenly we want to paint a rosier picture about how our society is in the hope that somehow that's going to defer God's judgment. Oh, my society is not that bad. We've done good things for God, haven't we? We're more righteous than other countries. But God's standard is never a comparative standard. I'm more righteous than he is, so I'm okay. No, that never works. Jesus says the standard in Matthew 5 is moral perfection. You must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Even if Judah is more righteous than Babylon in one sense, Judah is still unrepentantly guilty. And even if Judah committed less sin than Babylon, Judah's guilt is greater than Babylon's because Judah had God's word. They had his law and his prophets. Judah's rebellion was a knowing treason, and that makes their sin all the more wicked. Judah must fall. But Habakkuk makes a further demand for justice here. Is God to allow Babylon to go on destroying nations like they have been forever? Is Babylon not guilty? Should they not fall instead? And now Habakkuk has made his argument, and he's feeling pretty good about it. Chapter 2, verse 1. He says, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. He knows that God's going to answer him again, and he's ready. But he's not ready to listen to God. He's ready to argue back to God after God speaks to him. He's sure he has the better side of this debate. In fact, the last word here in verse 1, translated complaint in Hebrew, often means rebuke. Habakkuk thinks he's rebuked God. It's not a position of humility. But God is kind as well as just, and God patiently speaks again to Habakkuk. Verse 2, the Lord answered me. Write the vision. Make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. God tells Habakkuk, here's how I'm going to answer your questions. I'm going to give you a vision. And it's your job to write this vision down on tablets so that the vision can be displayed in public in an easy-to-read way so that everyone can see it. God intends to speak to all of his people in Judah through Habakkuk. And God says, the vision that I give you will come to pass. It might seem like it takes a long time to happen, but it will happen. And it's God's word, and God never lies. All right, well, what's the vision? God doesn't give it yet. 
Instead, God presents two possible ways that people will respond to this vision. In verse 4, he says, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It's not upright within him. Some people won't care about this vision. Uh, In their arrogance, as they hear about the threat of Babylon, they'll think, I've got money. I've got power. My position is too secure to be jeopardized. They won't trust God's word. But verse 4 says, But the righteous shall live by his faith. And this is one of the most famous verses in the Bible. It's repeated three times in the New Testament. In Romans 1, this verse is quoted to prove that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, which calls us to saving faith in Jesus' deity, death, and resurrection. In Galatians 3, this verse is quoted to prove that people are justified through their faith and not through keeping the Old Testament law. This verse is also quoted in Hebrews 10, which we'll talk about at the end of our time today. But this is a very important verse that tells us how believers are to live. We're always to live by faith. Now, in context, this verse, I think, gets at something a bit more specific. The righteous person in Habakkuk society is to live by faith. But faith in what? Well, he is to trust in the reliability of the vision that God is going to give Habakkuk. The righteous person takes God at his word. That's faith according to Romans 4. All right, well, what is God's word to Habakkuk? What is this vision? God doesn't give it yet. Instead, God gives an introduction to the vision. And for the sake of time, I'm going to summarize the rest of chapter 2. But you should read this for yourself. God says, Babylon indeed is guilty before me. And God gives five statements explaining the guilt of Babylon, each beginning with the word, Woe! Woe to Babylon, because it's a violent nation which has stolen from other nations. Woe to Babylon, because it has plundered other nations to improve its own position. Woe to Babylon, because it has used violence to build its empire. Woe to Babylon, because it has used its influence and its might to humiliate other nations and taking their citizens as slaves and captives. And woe to Babylon, because it worships idols. And in each case, God says to Babylon, what you have done to other countries will be done to you. That's a scary concept, isn't it? That God's justice upon a nation involves turning that nation's own sins upon them. So Babylon will suffer violence. Babylon will be plundered. Babylon will be exposed and humiliated. And Babylon's false gods can't guide them or deliver them. But God says in verse 20, The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Yahweh is no idol. He is the living God. He speaks, he acts, and he is mighty. And he brings justice upon unrepentant evildoers. And yes, sometimes he uses evil nations or evil people as his instruments of justice. You may remember in Judges and 1 Samuel that God even sends evil spirits as instruments of justice upon evildoers. But God is not unjust in using evildoers to punish other evildoers because in the end God's wrath will be avenged upon every unrepentant evildoer. No one will escape the judgment of God. All will be held to account. Colossians 3 says the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there will be no partiality. Galatians 6 says God's not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. Friends, God is just, and no one can flee from God's justice. And those who traffic in violence, in idolatry, and in arrogance, they will reap the destruction they've sown. Judah was guilty before God, and they would be judged. And we'll see that happen in next week's sermon. Babylon was also guilty before God, and they too will be judged. And we'll see the fulfillment of that in a few weeks in the book of Daniel. And friends, if our arrogant, idolatrous, and violent nation does not turn to God through faith in Jesus Christ, if we do not see a revival in this country, we too should expect that God's judgment will fall upon us. For Isaiah 3 says, Woe to the wicked, it shall be ill with him. For what his hands have dealt out, it shall be done to him. Friends, God reigns, and he is not to be trifled with. He is on the throne. His justice is absolute. 
And in the face of this glorious, awesome, majestic, holy God, what can our posture be towards him but reverence and devotion and awe and silence? No more tongue wagging back at the Lord. But while God is just, he is also merciful. It's not too late for our society. Again, the solution that God gives to national judgment is repentance. Not politics, but the gospel. That is the message God has given Christians to spread to people today. But in Habakkuk's day, God gave a different message that his people were to look to and trust. The vision that he promised back in chapter 2. A faithful word, word which God's people could trust in and find a way to live a godly life in evil times. And we now see that vision as we turn to our third question, which is how are God's people to endure living in a society under God's judgment? You know, in chapter 2, Habakkuk said that he was ready to keep arguing with God. But as we begin chapter 3, he's in a very different place. Verse 1, he says, A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigionoth. Now, instead of challenging God, Habakkuk is instead praying to God. And, and this prayer is according to Shigionoth. And this is a Hebrew musical term we find also in Psalm 7. What Habakkuk has done is he has written a song. And we get more evidence of that in the final words of chapter 3 to the choir master with stringed instruments. Habakkuk is now singing a song to God. This is very different than his arguing in chapters 1 and 2. Well, what changed? What changed is he listened to what God said in chapter 2, that God is just, that yes, God will judge Judah, but he will judge Babylon too. But more than that, God has given Habakkuk the vision that he promised in chapter 2. In chapter 3, Habakkuk now narrates that vision. He tells us what God showed him. And I think the key to understanding this vision is in Habakkuk's prayer in verse 2. He says, O Lord, I've heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Habakkuk says that in the past, he'd heard about God. God's power, God's glory, God's mighty deeds of deliverance. Awesome reports about God. But Habakkuk thought all these deeds were in the distant past. But here Habakkuk prays that God would revive those mighty deeds, that he would again do what he did in ancient times, that God would once more show himself to be mighty. And as he prays that God would do this, basically as he's praying that God would crush Babylon, now he prays for mercy. Now he sees he doesn't just want God's justice. He asks God to have mercy on his people. And that's Habakkuk's prayer. Now what I want you to see here is that this prayer looks backwards. It looks back to God's past acts of deliverance. And it looks forward to the promise that God will act in a similar way in the future. And this prayer reflects the vision that God gave him. A vision that in some ways looks backwards and in some ways looks forwards. The reason that the vision looks backwards is that the, the vision that we're about to read here sounds an awful lot like three passages from the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 33, Judges 5, and Psalm 68. Passages that were all written between four and 800 years before Habakkuk wrote. And these passages commemorate great victories that the Lord had given Israel in the past. And so this vision is backward looking, but it's also forward looking. I said that this passage was similar to Deuteronomy 33. There, Moses recounts how God delivered his people from slavery in Egypt and led them to the promised land. But in Habakkuk's day, God's people are again going into slavery, not in Egypt now, but in Babylon. But the vision of God shows that he will deliver his people with the second exodus. So it's forward-looking too. All right, well, now, now let's look at this vision, beginning in verse 3. God came from Taman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. Right, God reveals himself to Habakkuk as a warrior, marching to his people's aid from the south, from the wilderness where in the past God had uh, protected and guided his people. And as God comes to rescue his people, he unleashes his glory, glory that covers the heavens and the earth. Perhaps this glory looked like immense brightness in the vision. Perhaps it looked like a terrifying storm that covered the sky, which came from the south. 
Whatever it was, it was something wondrous. Verse 4. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. Friends, God wields immense power. Now God veils himself. Habakkuk can't see God himself, but he sees God's weapons. Some like rays, perhaps, or terrifying lightning bolts, disease, death. Uh, God is uh, the Lord of an amazing host of, 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 uh, of, of, of weapons and, and uh, allies to bring destruction upon his foes. Verse 6, he stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. God is so mighty that if he but glances at a nation, they leap in terror. God's might lays low the oldest mountains on earth like they are but dust. And God does this as he marches along the ancient paths, the paths by which he had formerly led his people to the promised land. Verse 7, I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. As God marches to war, he passes by other nations who are not the targets of his rage. And yet they take cover in dread as the glorious power of God passes by. And now God comes to battle. And here the vision takes an interesting turn. In the vision, God shows Habakkuk Babylon not as a human army, but as the raging seas. See, in the ancient Near East, the seas were a symbol of disorder and chaos of untamed rebellion. That's why the prophetic visions that we'll see in the book of Daniel in a few weeks and in Revelation often portray the sea as a place of chaotic evil. That's why the new creation will have no more sea because there will be no sin. But as God reveals his plans to Habakkuk, he shows Habakkuk that Babylon is like the sea. Babylon is rebellious. And now the battle begins. Verse eight. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses, on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. Selah. You split the earth with rivers. God presents himself as a warrior king, riding into battle on a chariot like the kings of antiquity did. And those who uh, made war in chariots did so by shooting bows and arrows. And so now God unveils his bow and he fits his arrow to the drawstring and he looses it. But God's arrows, when they are unleashed, they're not just like arrows. They are more powerful than any weapon we can imagine because God is the creator and he can also be the uncreator. And here God splits the earth with flash flooding. The land and water are at his command and they are unleashed on his foes. Verse 10 says, The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. Babylon tries to resist the Lord, but to no avail. Verse 11. The sun and moon stood still in their place. This is a reference to Joshua chapter 10. The Israelites were in battle with the Canaanites, and God allowed the sunlight to last longer than it ordinarily would have, so that the Israelites could win the battle. Friends, God has this kind of authority over nature, and he will bring it to bear against Babylon. Who can stand against the Lord? Verse 11 says, At the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear, God unleashes his full fury against the foe. And what happens? Verse 12, You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. Selah. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. Yes, the Babylonians would defeat and enslave the Jews, but one day God in fury would set his people free. He would deliver the Davidic line, the line of anointed kings. And he will stomp on Babylon. He will thresh them, an act of crushing and slicing. He will cut Babylon open and utterly slay them for the sake of his people. And this is the vision that God showed Habakkuk and which he told him to write down. 
This is the vision that the Jews in Habakkuk's day were to trust. And that's what we see in the final verses. Habakkuk now accepts God's plan, and he trusts God's vision. And here we see what it looks like when a righteous person lives by faith in God and his word. Verse 16. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. The vision terrifies Habakkuk. His encounter with the Lord has left him shaking in awe. He knows now that the Lord is just and that he's merciful. Babylon will fall and Judah will fall too for a season, but they will be restored by the God who keeps his promises to his people. And Habakkuk says in verse 16, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. He says, first, I'll wait. He will trust that the Lord's vision will come true, even if it takes a long time. That God will make good his word. Friends, that's faith. Second, he says, I'll wait quietly. He will argue with God no longer. And third, he accepts God's plan. Judah must be exiled. And Judah will, in God's timing, be delivered. Verse 17, he says, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Habakkuk says, I know hard times are coming. And as I see things get worse around me, as I see the indicators of judgment drawing near, I will rejoice in the Lord. As the produce dries up, which Deuteronomy 28 said was a, a judgment of God upon Israel when they sinned. As that happens, he'll still rejoice in the Lord. As the Babylonians approach and kill their animals, still he will rejoice in the Lord. As his country falls, still he will rejoice in the Lord. He can rejoice in the God of his salvation. Why? Because verse 19 says, God, the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. The Lord's word has given him help and strength and hope. The Lord has given him what he needs to endure this calamity. His feet are now like a deer, which is nimble enough to keep its footing in treacherous and dangerous places. In other words, he is steady in his faith in the Lord, no matter what happens around him. Though all should fall apart around him, he will still rejoice in God. Friends, this whole book points to these last three or four verses. And it's here that we find the most important application for ourselves today. How are we? here and now, to navigate the terrible moments in which we live, in which our society seems to be coming apart at the seams. How are we to endure crisis, nationally and internationally? How are we to endure crisis personally? The vision that God gives Habakkuk points the way, because it tells us to look backwards and to look forwards. Backwards at God's mighty saving deeds in the past. Habakkuk looked back at the Exodus and at great battles that God had won for his people. Today, we can look back and see the supreme battle that God has fought to deliver us in the past. The battle at the cross, where Jesus defeated sin, Satan, and death. Colossians 2 says, You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Friends, Jesus has won victory for us at the cross. Jesus died in our place. He has broken the power of sin over our lives. He has canceled its penalty. And he has won victory over every spiritual adversary at the cross. In the hardest moments of your life, look back. And remember what God has done for you. Don't doubt God's love or his goodness or his power. Look at the cross because in the cross all of those things are seen most clearly. Jesus loves you so much that he gave his own life to buy you out of slavery to sin. To redeem you and set you free. We have experienced a greater exodus than the exodus from Egypt. Or even the exodus prophesied here from Babylon. When times are tough. When your faith falters, look backwards to the cross. Look and see again how much God loves you. See the power, the justice, and the mercy of God in the death of Jesus. The full measure of God's wrath poured on Christ. 
and the full measure of Christ's righteousness given to us. Remember God's great deeds in the past, but also look forward. Habakkuk was to look forward by anticipating that God would fulfill the vision, which we just read about. It would take a long time, like God said, but it came to pass. Friends, we also have been given a vision, a clearer, better vision to look forward to, the vision of Revelation 19. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. Then the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Friends, Jesus is coming back. Yes, it's been a long time. But this is as certain as the word that God gave Habakkuk. He is coming back, and he is coming back as a conquering king. And he will set all things right. And he will vanquish every adversary on the earth. And he will overthrow Satan and his world system. And he will subjugate the earth under his rule. He will raise believers from the dead. And we will have victory over sin and, and sickness and death. And he will bring us into the new creation the new and better garden, and there we will dwell in everlasting blessedness. Friends, he has delivered us already. He will deliver us in the end. He will do it. And know that right now in the present, he is with us. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. So don't despair. The righteous is to live by his faith. And friends, know this. We don't bring the kingdom of God on earth at the ballot box. Jesus will bring the kingdom of God by his own double-edged sword. And friends, this is how we are to live if we're not happy about how November 3rd turns out. This is how we are to live in the tough times that we're in in this moment. This is how we, like Habakkuk, can rejoice in the midst of calamity and difficulty because we look back at the cross, we look forward and see that Jesus wins, and we know that he's with us now. This is how we're to live if, God forbid, our nation falls under the final levels of divine judgment. If, God forbid, COVID or something like it goes on for another 5, 10, or 20 years. If, God forbid, the economy collapses. If, God forbid, our government collapses. If, God forbid, our own lives fall apart and are desolated by tragedy. Look back to Christ's cross. Look forward and remember the promise of Christ's coming. Habakkuk said the righteous will live by his faith. This is what that looks like. And so as chapter 10 of the book of Hebrews says, you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while and the coming one, Jesus, will come and he will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and persevere and preserve their souls. Friends, Jesus wins. Remember that and draw strength from it. Live by faith in this chaotic time, my dear brothers and sisters.